Today's teaching comes from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The Battle of Antietam in 1862 was a 12-hour battle, and it ranks as the bloodiest day in Civil War history. The bloodiest day in Civil War history. Now, What's ironic about this battle is that this battle could have been won without any bloodshed, or at least very little bloodshed. What's crazy about this event is that the South General, Robert E. Lee, had his battle plans go missing. And guess where these battle plans landed? Right into the hands of the Union General, uh, George McClellan. McClellan had Lee's battle plans right in front of him. And any good leader would have looked at those plans and said, I'm going to create a massive ambush. I'm going to surround the enemy and I'm going to uh, mount an attack that's gonna cause complete and utter surrender without even having to fire a shot. But McClellan getting the battle plans, he gloated a little bit. He got excited. He waited and hesitated. And sadly, what happened we had the bloodiest day in Civil War history. But as with General McClellan, this morning, through our text, we have Satan's battle plan right in front of us this morning. Here we learn about Satan's strategies to use deception and lies to encourage us to give in to those feelings of lust and envy and covetousness. But since we know his tactics in God's word, we can all be better prepared when he tempts us to fall into sin. You'll notice in your outline this morning in your order of worship, sin and Satan strategies. All right, you'll notice two areas, to divide and to conquer. To divide and to conquer. All right, let's look at verses one through five and we'll see our first point, how Satan divides. You'll notice in your text that before sin entered the world at all, Adam and Eve were living with God in perfect unity, in perfect peace. Their relationship was marked by perfect love. No sin had entered the picture. They existed in perfection with God and each other, yet we see Satan's description. He's crafty, he's tricky. He enters the picture and look what his first tactic is. He directs all of his lies 
towards Eve by attacking the word of God. Now, why in the world does he do this? Why in the world does he do this? Well, if you look back to Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17, God gave these commandments to Adam, but guess who wasn't even alive to hear these commandments from God? Eve. Eve was not even created, and look who Satan attacks first. The one who didn't even know God's word. Talk about a dirty, dirty move, right? Well, where's Adam? Where's Adam in this whole picture? Adam is absolutely failing his wife and God by not warning her of God's commands. And guess who knows this? Satan. Look at Eve's response in verse two to Satan's temptations. She responds not by quoting Genesis 2, 16 and 17 perfectly, but what she does is she neglects the bounty of all that God has given them. And then she adds an additional prohibition that wasn't even in God's word. And then she reduces the consequence. In verses 16 and 17, God tells Adam, you will surely die. Like you will get this. You, you're gonna die, die. It's actually repeated in Hebrew. She minimizes this, all right? Now, what's Satan doing? He's capitalizing on Eve's weakness by creating division in their marriage. You see, she responds by neglecting all this bounty and what Satan's doing in the meantime is driving them further and further away from God. He's dividing this relationship and this community that God had created, but there's also a second layer of division that's happening as well. Satan's now driving a wedge in between their marriage. Now we know that Adam is sitting idly by here because Satan's not coming uh, with bells and whistles, with horns and, and raging. No, Satan's kind of just gently having this conversation. Adam's in the background letting Satan do his thing. He's not doing anything to protect them or stand up for God's word. Satan is gaining a lot of ground on the battleground of temptation right here, and he set the trap for Adam and Eve. Now, what happens next? Her misunderstanding of God's word, once she verbalizes it, Satan knows that he can capitalize. Oh, she really doesn't know this. So maybe I can just go ahead and get away with this lie and see what happens. And that's what he does right in verse four. He tells her, you will not surely die. She even misunderstood the penalty of surely die. Satan's the one who actually understands the severity of the penalty. And then once she believes the lie, Satan can now turn Adam and Eve's affections and all their attention from the abundant blessing that God had given them to the one thing God had prohibited. You'll see after the lie in verse four that Satan toys with their minds in three appeals. And this comes back around when we get to Jesus. Notice this, that he appeals to their lust for food. He shows them this forbidden fruit and in the lust of their eyes. 
He's making them feel like they didn't already have enough. Then he appeals to the beauty of the forbidden tree as though they weren't in a garden with tons of beautiful trees all around them. And then he tempts them with wisdom and pride that they were never supposed to have. Why? Because they had God's very presence with them every single day, every minute of the day, God was with them. If they needed to know anything, they had God to go to. What's Satan doing? Satan is building a case of discontentment in their hearts. First, by isolating them from God. Second, by isolating them from God's word. And third, through community. When they're all alone, Satan can now build this narrative of neglect for Adam and Eve by highlighting what they don't have, although they have everything that anyone could ever want. Satan really is the father of lies and deception, and he plays dirty. In his book, Hooked, How to Build a Habit-Forming Product, Nair Ayal, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. People from Eastern North Carolina don't talk well. Um, He's a game designer, an app developer, and he's also a professor at Stanford. And he explains why apps like Facebook are so addictive on our phones. Uh, He says, what makes a product so effective is what the technology industry calls captology. means capturing someone's attention. Captology. And he writes this, a successful app creates a persistent routine, or a behavioral loop. The app both triggers a need and provides the momentary solution to it. He goes on to say that feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous an often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. He goes on to say that gradually these, these bonds cement into habit as the users turn to your product when experiencing certain internal triggers. Is this not precisely what we see with Satan in this text? We see Captology 101 right here with Satan. Satan has created in Adam and Eve this feeling of confusion. Did God really say? He then isolates them away from God and from their marriage. And then he creates frustration in their lives. It helped them to go on and think these things like, well, that tree looks better than all of the rest of them. Why can't I have that food? Why can't I have that piece of fruit? Why can't I have wisdom like God? He was building this discontentment in their lives, so much so that it led them to enough pain and irritation and it prompted them to a sinful action to quell a negative sensation. Well, where do we see this today? How often does 
discontentment in your life cause you to sin. It might be at work and you're running, running point on a project and someone drops the ball significantly and then your boss comes to you and chews you out, places all the blame on you and you just have to sit there and take it. That negative sensation, that discontent feeling of this is unfair. What do you do with that? You're in the battleground of temptation at that point. Well, if you're anything like me and my sinful side, you might turn to gossip or slander or berating that person when you finally get them alone. Toby, I can't believe you dropped the ball on this. How incompetent are you? I can't deal with you anymore. You should get another job. Do us all a favor and quit. What happens inside of your personal relationships when somebody doesn't meet your ever-growing and ever-changing lava lamp of expectations? What happens when they fail to meet those? Do you get frustrated and irritated and find yourself on the battleground of temptation instead of moving towards that person and reminding yourself of the gospel, you might get vengeance through stonewalling or removing affection from a person by silently killing somebody in your own lives. Or maybe you might get so mad you lash out verbally or maybe physically with forms of abuse or manipulation. You see, the same sins and temptations that Adam and Eve faced in our text this morning are the same exact temptations that we have today. Sadly, Adam and Eve failed. They fell into Satan's trap. And this brings us to our final point. So we've seen Satan's first tactic that he seeks to divide on the battleground of temptation. Let's look at his second tactic of conquering in verses six and seven. You'll notice once Satan has Adam and Eve isolated from God's word, he's aroused their discontentment and greed. All he has to do now is sit back and watch the chips fall. You'll notice in verse six, Satan doesn't pluck the fruit from the tree and come to Adam and Eve and say, eat it, eat it, eat it, do it. One, two, three, go, do it. He doesn't do any of that. He just sits back and he lets them do their thing. He's not intimidating them. You see, the seed of sin was growing in the soil of discontentment in their hearts and it blossomed into this deadly poisonous sin. They've fallen into the trap. What's heartbreaking even still through this is verse seven. They took the fruit in verse six, they ate, and what was their response in seven? There was no joy. There was like, oh, this was kind of worth it. There was none of that. What happened in verse seven? They immediately noticed that they were naked. Not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. They were completely stripped of the purity 
that they had before God and each other. The temptation and the lies of Satan completely clouded all of God's goodness and it clouded all of God's commandments and directives for their lives. Satan's completely conquered Adam and Eve. It's similar to how you catch a bee. Have you ever been at a picnic table and see a bee? And there's one of two ways to get rid of the bee. First is seeing the bee and in fear, try to ambush it and swing and swipe at the bee. Now, people who don't see the bee across the way might look at you and think that you might have something wrong with you. Secondly, what usually happens whenever you're swiping at something in pure fear? You're probably gonna destroy the picnic table, hit someone or something and injure yourself. Most likely what's gonna happen is you're just gonna irritate the bee really bad and it's gonna come back and try to sting you and then you're running like an adult uh, in fear of a small little bee. Now, here's a better way to capture a bee. If you have a drink with you, particularly a bottled drink that has any sort of sugar, just relax and open the cap, have just a little bit left on the bottom, and just sit the bottle right next to the bee. Don't alarm it, don't move. What will happen is the bee and its little curiosity and its little hunger will fly right into the bottle and will start drinking your drink fat and happy. And all you have to do is close the lid on that bottle and that bee has no idea what's happening. He is just enjoying that sweet nectar of cheer wine, if you're at a Southern picnic, and He's suffocating to death, fat and happy and suffocating. Think about this. When Satan tempts us to go outside of the bounds that God has given us, what is his purpose? It's not that he cares that we're missing out on some goodness. It's not that he's trying to help us live our best life now. Satan hates God and Satan hates all of God's creation, particularly us who are created in his image. Satan's purpose for us is to get us fat and happy and docile so that we walk right into temptation and right into sin where he can close the lid on us and capture us and suffocate us to death. This is his game plan, y'all. We have got to realize this, we must never forget that when we follow Satan and give in to sin, we are walking right into a deadly trap. Let's take gossip again. Imagine you're still upset with Toby and for a brief moment, you have to get rid of this pain and then you say something horrible behind his back. Guess what? that might feel really good for a moment. Bashing somebody and getting back at them and taking revenge has an effect on you that just, man, that just feels good. Just a little bit, right? But guess what? When you start gossiping and talking bad about somebody behind their back to someone else, any sane person's gonna do what? But if they're saying that about them behind their back, I guarantee they're gonna say the same thing about me then you're trapped because your character is revealing some major flaws. Take lying. What happens when you really want to get something and then you lie to get your way? It might feel really awesome to get that thing for a little while, but guess what happens 
when the truth is exposed. Nobody can trust your word anymore. And what's left is brokenness with you and God and with people around you in your life. And then you're left to pick up all these broken pieces by yourself. Sadly for Adam and Eve, that's where we find them. Complete and utter brokenness. You see, Satan appeared to really care for their best interest. Didn't God really say, oh, he's just being selfish. Oh, that fruit, oh, that's real good. You're not gonna go share that. No, you should do this. God didn't really say that. Come on, do your thing. He really seemed to care. Like, oh man, he actually wants my best. But after they sinned, where was he? He abandoned them. He used them. He caused them to sin. And who was left there picking up the pieces, sewing foliage on their clothes and their body? Adam and Eve, all alone. How does God respond? Of all this brokenness and all this evil, trampling on God's goodness, how do you think God responds? Well, he addresses their sins. He hands down their punishments. And we're gonna look at those verses over the next couple of weeks. But look down to verse 15. Even after he pronounces the curse on Satan, Adam, and Eve, in verse 15, he gives hope. All right, and he promises that one day an offspring from Eve would come and that he would trample on Satan's head. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, to the third book of the gospel. So go to Luke chapter three if you're able to. If you're not able to, that's fine. But we learn in Luke chapter three through Luke's genealogy that Jesus was this promised descendant from Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And then if you go to Luke four, look what Jesus's first act of business is, if you wanna call it that. He goes right into the wilderness to battle against Satan through various temptations. He did this to start to undo the process of the sin that Adam and Eve brought in by their disobedience. And guess what? Satan's strategy is exactly the same for Jesus as it was from Adam and Eve. Notice these parallels. To Adam and Eve, Satan offered up fruit. And to Jesus, he offers up bread. He's trying to stir their desires for their flesh, for their hunger. To Adam and Eve, Satan offers up this beautiful tree in this garden and to Jesus offers him all of the kingdoms of the world, stirring up the desires of their sight. And then third, Satan attacks Adam and Eve with their pride, trying to get them to desire wisdom that they were never able to have. And what does he do with Jesus? He tries to stir pride in Jesus, saying, well, if you're really God, you should surely be able to command all these angels. Do you think, Jesus? Let's see it. But what was Jesus's response at every single point of temptation? Jesus refuted these attacks from Satan at every point by standing on and using the word of God. 
You see, Adam and Eve didn't rely on God's word at all when they were battling Satan. They didn't even use it for what it was. They twisted it and left things out and added to it all to suit their end. Yet Jesus experienced the exact same temptations here, but on an infinite level. And he defeated Satan by the power of God's word. And this was just the first battle to reverse the curse. We know later in Jesus's life to completely pay for the sins of Adam and Eve and all of God's people for all of history that Jesus would have to go to the cross, that he would have to die to pay for the sins of God's people. He would be that sinless sacrifice. And for three days, he stayed dead. And one would think at that point, it seems like Satan has isolated, divided, and conquered Jesus. But we know that he rose from the dead. We know that he defeated death. He came out from the tomb victoriously. And it's by his resurrection power that lives in us by faith alone that we can fight back against Satan. Christ's resurrection has immediate consequences for all of us today. In his book, Against the Flow, Oxford professor John Lennox, he illustrates Christ's resurrection power in us with the story of this Russian follower of Jesus who spent years in a Siberian labor camp for the crime of teaching his children the Bible. Lennox writes this. He said, he's describing the conversation between him and the released prisoner. He said, he described to me that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. I listened thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering how I would have fared under his circumstances. As if he had read my thoughts, he suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Lennox says, embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you're right. And then he grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone the blood of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this, that God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in Gulag, but once there I found that God met me there, exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them to face temptation and persecution. Lennox closes the story and he says, we can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way and not necessarily a moment before. You see, when we're facing temptations in this life, they can seem incredibly painful. And it can feel like they will go on forever. And part of that captology is you want to do something for a quick fix. I don't want to experience pain, therefore I'll just give in and make it go away. But Jesus gives us his spirit, the same spirit that raised him from the dead to provide us with an ever-present help in times of trouble. 
Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The million dollar question before us then is, what do we do when we find ourselves on the battleground of temptation? First, you turn to Christ, not as this moral example of what to do, but looking to him and seeing what he's done, turning to him in faith and trusting him. Secondly, we turn to his word. We remind ourselves of the gospel, of the goodness of God's grace, and we turn to community. There's a reason why all of us are in here this morning. God's put us all in this room to help one another in the battleground of temptation. You have something to bring to the table and people need you here. This is why we do community Bible reading. We want us to be in, in this church reading God's word together as family. We need to remind ourselves of what sin has cost Jesus and what he endured to bring us forgiveness. We cling to his promises and we resist evil. And when you do this, you might be very surprised how Jesus will strengthen you in those moments. C.S. Lewis says this, he said, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A person who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find our strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. Church, I'm gonna be real with you right now. Fighting sin is hard. Fighting sin is really hard because sin is really appealing. Sin presents itself as a ton of fun. But remember, that fruit to Adam and Eve looked delicious. But as they ate it, it rotted in their bellies. It destroyed their relationship with God and other people. So when you find temptation, let me encourage you to remind yourself of Jesus's abundant love, love that compelled him to hang on a tree to bring you forgiveness and life. Remind yourself that by faith, he is living in you and in your weakness, there you will find the strength you need because of the resurrected power of our King. Remind yourself of that good news over and over again and cling to it with every ounce of faith that you have because it's in his presence where Satan 
will try to divide and conquer, but will fail. Now, if you're like me, what happens when you're gonna fail? What happens? What do you do when you fail? The same message that allows you to fight is the exact same message that binds your wounds and gives you mercy and grace when you fail him because his mercy is greater than your sin and in him you will always find forgiveness. It's at the cross where you find out how much Jesus loves you. And it's also at the cross where he binds you up and tells you he'll never leave you or forsake you and send you out to fight another day. It's because of that good news. Let's pray. Father, we are a people prone to wander. We are prone to give into temptation. Our first step is towards disobedience and your first step towards us is bringing us back. We are like the one lost sheep that you go out and throw on your back and bring us home. Father, I pray for every single one of us that we would realize that every day we are on the battleground of temptation and every day you give us strength to face that day. Lord, help us to cling to your promises. Put people into our lives who can love us and care for us and to share the burden with. Father, I pray that you would yoke us to you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Grow us and strengthen us to see your beauty more than we see the lure and pleasures of this world. Father, protect us from evil. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.